The world of PR and marketing is a very singular professional environment. There aren't a lot of others like it. And so for people transitioning into this world from another profession, it can be kind of easy to start to feel like a square peg in a round hole. David Allen Moss didn't set out to become a creative director. It just sort of found him. A polymath artist and musician with endless energy and interests, he was drawn to the creative aspect of the job, but he sure didn't fit the mold. In a world populated by high-profile clients, high-pressure business meetings, and high-strung personalities. And I come to his office, and he's sitting at his desk. And I, I just come around, and I said, is everything okay? You want to do my fucking job? <laughs> and he jumps up, and he runs through the door, and he's breathing in my face. You think this is easy? Well, this is Best Buy. <laughs> now the chief creative officer at Evergreen Podcasts in Cleveland, David's impressive and meandering career has wound through some high-profile operations, including American Greetings and EDR Media. His work has shaped brands including Gateway Computers, Win Las Vegas, and yes, Best Buy. Through it all, he's kept his feet on the ground and his heart on his sleeve, an outsider still, in many ways, to the world of marketing. And he's got the war stories to prove it. Because whether it's managing pressure cooker creative teams, defusing hair trigger tempers, or watching your flagship client walk away from a contract, marketing can be a hard knock cutthroat business. And it's especially tricky to navigate as a creative outsider in a corporate world. I'm Dusty Weiss from PodCamp Media. This is Lead Balloon, a podcast about PR, marketing, and branding nightmares and the well-meaning communications professionals who lived them. Thanks for tuning in. One of my favorite things about this business is the interesting people you meet. And they don't get much more interesting than today's guest. But that's really what Lead Balloon is all about as a podcast, finding the fascinating people who work in strategic communications and celebrating the stories of the times that they've overcome adversity. If you're new to the show and enjoy what you hear, make sure you subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Follow PodCamp Media on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn to see what else we're up to. And if you leave me a review in iTunes, I will read it on the show. Like this review from Dina, who says... The music, introduction, and narration are very well done, and the production quality is top-notch. I love the idea of shedding light on PR mistakes. It makes for a very personable show. Highly recommend. Aw, Dina. You're gonna give me a complex. So, I met this week's guest about a year ago. David Allen Moss is the CCO of Evergreen Podcasts, and we got to chatting at a podcast conference in Orlando. We're both strategic communicators who have moved into the podcast space. We're both bearded guys with shaved bald heads, and we will both talk to anybody about literally anything. Which, of course, means that COVID quarantine has been tough on both of us. My hair is getting too long. <laughs> <laughs> this is only two days. What's really amazing is being home. At my, it grows a lot faster. <laughs> is that how that works? <laughs> yes. A Cleveland guy by birth, David originally set out to study industrial design. And the path that he took to find his career as a marketer and brand strategist helps explain why he's never really fit in with the marketing crowd. Uh, do you prefer David Allen Moss or just David Moss when I'm talking about you and your current well, title? Well, if you, the first time is fine, and then just the first name after that. Yeah, fine. yeah. Well, the reason I've had the Allen in there uh, is there are a number of David Mosses in town, and one is a TV 
local TV personality, and he's the Moss Man. And so the times I met David, uh, he he told me, "Well, you, you know, you're the original." I said, "What do you mean?" Well, you know, my family they they changed their name when they came over on the boat. <laughs> I said, "Well, you're right." And I just tell everyone I'm the original, and they and then I have to explain. <laughs> um, he does movie reviews, and you know. Sits down with chefs, a lot of the morning show type stuff. He's he's an all right guy. Okay, sounds like uh, he's at least not territorial over the name, so that's good. No, he brought me on the show one time. We we used to, I used to uh, own a company called Emerging Chefs, mm-hmm. and there's very different stories about that. But we uh, it was pop up dinner party. We did about thirty six events in two years, and uh, so we would bring the chefs onto these morning shows and. He had met me once before when we were at a comedy club with a big group of people, and I asked for the check, and it it, it was taking a long time, and finally this server comes, and says, you wouldn't believe what just happened. I, I took this check to the other David Moss, you know, the Moss man, and he said, what the f*** is this? It was like a $700 bill for him and his wife. <laughs> so... You know, uh, it's fun running into him once in a while. I, so I'm on the show, and he says, why don't you come on the show? So he has me sit on the show at the very last segment. He's, like, wrapping up the show, and he's like, and uh, we have an interloper on the, in the studio today. Apparently his name is David Moss. And then the camera went to me. I'm like, that's it. <laughs> that was it. That was my moment with David. That was worth the it. The other David. Uh, that's pretty good. Yeah. It sounds like a so, fun guy. He's all right. So David Allen Moss, Chief Creative Officer at Evergreen Podcasts, a brand strategist, a creative director. It's also worth noting a Big Ten guy. You went to school at Purdue, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Hail Purdue. Like a lot of my favorite professional communicators, you started your career in classic journalism before transitioning to the field of strategic communications. What course did your career take after you left Gannett in Lafayette, Indiana? And, and what were you doing at Gannett? Well, you know, I was a features reporter. I also did a little art direction. Uh, there was a great, um, it'd be kind of like, uh, you probably had one of these sort of entertainment mags in Madison. So it's called Campus Weekly. Oh, yeah. Okay. So um, I kind of uh, was chasing love. I ended up at the uh, arch rival Indiana University. <gasps> I was on what they call the 11 semester program, Dusty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was really enriched in the liberal arts experience so much that I changed my major twice and, you know, finished at a third school. So, uh, but it's the end game that counts. So I ended up at IU working three or four jobs, you know, working at a lumber yard, working at a small convention center, and then pacing up, I got into pacing up ads and ad design uh, in something called Multi-Ad Creator at the Indiana Daily Student for $4.25 an hour. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so I was still in it. I never really got out of it until I got my first real jobby job. Mm-hmm which would have been, uh, I was a graphics multimedia director right out of the gate for a career in education clearinghouse. So, and then I also fell into the whole music scene down there. It was a great music community, so I had a couple bands, and a friend of mine started a studio. So I got into the recording arts. It was always rich media, always, even though I was so established in the traditional. Uh, I, I just got into um, you know, publication design, brand design as a part of that. So I kind of started out right out of the gate as an art director. 
And then one thing led to another. My family had moved away from Northeast Ohio, and I ended up uh, moving back to Cleveland in, you know, 99. So I was gone for about 10 years. And what I like about it is you've got a non-traditional background, and your learning curve of coming from that non-traditional media background of moving into a realm where you were working with clients and trying to deliver strategic objectives to them. Mm-hmm. How was that learning curve for you? How, how did you go about making your way along that? Part of it was I, I was able to kind of have this sort of enterprising startup. I'm really more of an entrepreneur in terms of the way I approach things. So even that Learn More Indiana, that program, after a couple of years, they were the first group to put career interest inventories and career profiles onto the internet. And they needed a web services director and web was pretty new in 96, 97. I said, I'll do it. So putting yourself in this sort of trial by fire and I started in industrial design and then I, and then I, you know, I just felt like, well, I don't want to just be designing products. Well, you know, we've come full circle because certainly podcasts are a product, but they might have a little bit more human and intentional spirit and soul to them than just, you know, I'm going to design a blender. Mm -hmm. So I switched out of that industrial design. I also had, it all accumulates, Dusty. You know, I had uh, started out in a formal art study when I was five every week for a couple hours. And so I had all this fine art and I always knew, boy, that's going to power something. All that creativity, you really learn to see the world a different way. Mm-hmm. Anyway, fast forward. Uh, shifting to the thing, I think what really was the, the real deal is I, I, I found across an opportunity to work for AmericanGreetings.com when I came back to Cleveland after about you know six months of just trying to freelance. Going into that space and having all these internal clients and creating um, specialty websites with a very small team and leading that team into six or seven websites over that year span taught me a lot about, you know, how to carry yourself in those settings and how not to. I got to tell you, some of the people I came across, some people just, just, they're just not real. Those are the people I didn't spend a lot of time with if I could help my, if I could help it. It's just, hey, what kind of shoes are you wearing? Man, you must be really creative. It's just, no, that's not the measure. Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. American Greetings, of course, is the world's second largest producer of paper greeting cards, runner-up only to Hallmark itself. Today, they employ 27,000 people worldwide. And if you remember back to the turn of the century, American Greetings was making a huge splash in the online space with its web-based electronic greeting cards, which in today's world is adorable to think that the internet was ever that cute and harmless. This, of course, presented a huge opportunity for someone with David's background in both art direction and web design, because unlike today, those were considered to be distinctively different fields in that era. But as a creative outsider of sorts, David quickly discovered that there were things about life in the corporate world that kind of rubbed him the wrong way. You know, the appeal at American Greetings is like, you know, social expressions was the jam. I mean, and everything was going e-cart mm-hmm. at the time. And, and they had about 200 people in a division, and they moved us all into some big warehouse off of the mothership over, over you know, this huge, there's like 5,000 people working at this place or something. And uh, we were so excited, so excited, and we get over there the day they open up, and it's, you know, six-foot-high cubicles as far as the eye can see. <laughs> and we go up to this lounge, and one of my, my colleagues, because there's certainly a lot of cynicism in the creative ranks, said, 
they built us a hog farm. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were pretty miserable right out of the gate, and then it was supposed to be all French industrial, and there's a foosball table in the back. You can believe I spent a lot of time at that foosball table, I can tell you. Well, my wrists were, you know, they get a little tight. I need to go. I got to shake it out. So they were going to go public. They were going to go public. And here, here I was working with myself, a writer, and a programmer. We were running. We had our own little internal agency. We did the AmericanGreetings.com corporate site. We did, like, Secret Santa for the military ornaments. We did design wear, balloons, own, you know. And you learn a lot about, like, cooked brands. That's where I learned about, like, really finished brands. Mm-hmm. Um, was working with those internal clients. And some of those internal clients went, who told you to put the Pokemon balloon on the homepage? You know, I mean, there was just, like, this was their life. Mm-hmm. So I came in one day. And I got there right around nine on the nose. And, and a bunch of my group who worked on all the, the cool stuff, Blue Mountain and American Greetings, like the cool card, like e-cards and things were getting animated. And the only thing I was animating was like banner ads. They had me doing the banner ads in, in Flash. And uh, that's, you know, um, well, where were you? We, we had a meeting, the whole, the whole web group had a meeting. I said, oh, I didn't even know about it. What, what do you mean you didn't know about it? It was, just, it was all about this and that and the new direction. And I said, what do you mean? And, she said, well, we're not doing corporate sites anymore. And that was like, who's, was somebody going to tell me about that? That was my whole job. What am I doing now? Oh, well, you'll have to ask Bill. And Bill French was this little troubadour that would, like, march around from cube to cube. <laughs> he was always sweating and kind of out of breath and just kind of really intense, really intense. So I sat down with Bill later that morning, and I said, hey, Bill, this is really interesting when were you planning to tell me that I didn't have anything to do, you know, after this? Oh, yeah, I'm really sorry. And, you know, you're really talented. He barely knew me. He was the, like the, the department head. But, you know, we'd really love for you to stay. I said, well, I don't think I can stay out of, out of principle. I just don't know if I And fortunately, I had applied for an art director's job at the, the big production and media company up, you know, across town. And they called me that very week. And I was, oh, wow. they were like, we're ready for you. Like, I had talked to him six months prior, and like, we think we're ready for you. And I said, I, I, think, <laughs> I think I'm ready for you. So David accepted a role at EDR Media, a leading Midwestern production house. But while the profile of his client portfolio continued to rise, the change in scenery didn't mean that he really fit in any better with the corporate crowd. That's where the war stories took a new fever pitch, because it, it was the production house they were doing national regional commercial spots it was a you know full tv production facility they were doing the lottery campaigns all this on the first floor but as you went up in the floors it got more and more new media so i got involved in that new media group and in that first year i wrote the proposal with the executive sales group to um introduce the best buy in-store media network okay and uh, we, we started out three store sneaker net where we would put all the program and, and polish it up, put it on DVDs, and run it out to these stores every week. And then we grew to 360 stores, and it updated twice weekly. Best Buy put a bonded T1 into the building. Uh, they put Scala. They put like four or five Scala players in every store. It was a, it was a model. Yeah, this is ahead of the curve kind of stuff. Yeah, this is in 2001. So it was a model uh, retail media network installation, and it was, you know... The company was just riding high on this. This is our biggest client. They're probably 60% of our business. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
But you can imagine a lot of stress comes with that. It was like probably the most stressful time in my career, for sure. It was really intense. How'd you deal with that? How'd you work through that? I mean, that's a lot of responsibility and it's resting squarely on your shoulders. We had a nice number of, I call them line managers, like director level folks that really kept it all going. And some of them were seasoned. So the one thing I had to do is learn to shield myself from their deep, seated <laughs> negativity. <laughs> They'd say things like, you go down the first floor, they say, well, yeah, we're going to have to pour battery acid on this place to ever make it go away. I mean, <laughs> this, this place is just awful. And I'm like, are you? What? Hey, good to see you, man. <laughs> I'm going to head back upstairs. <laughs> Managing that stress, I don't know that I did. I don't know that I did. I think that's when I lost all my hair. But the, 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 the projects, I always go back to that, that. That was about six years. And I always go back to the projects. Because I worked with, I was promoted creative director by the guy who was going to tell you a little war story about the uh, VP of creative they brought in from New York. And he was more of an agency guy. Mm -hmm. he, Cliff Hughes was his name. And he was just a big, burly guy. And he was a writer, like me. So he's like, listen, we're going to, David, here's my Amex. Just get what you need. That was like, he had such an attitude about it. And he'd come into my office. There was a lot of excitement when he came on because he wanted to build our group up. And he really did. And he's like, we're going to do, we're doing CD-ROMs and we're doing this and we're doing kiosks. We already had been doing a lot of kiosks. In fact, the connection was EDR Media, which is the company I was working for, did the largest kiosk rollout with American Greetings. Something like 20,000 uh, create a card kiosks that went out to Walgreens and the, all the, uh, you may remember there, you could pick your design and it would plot the card out. Those were everywhere, yeah. That was state of the art until they realized they had to maintenance these things. <laughs> and when I was at American Greetings, I used to wander around. They had these Star Wars hallways, mm -hmm. literally, where all the services and pipes and things, and you could get to other warehouses and places, shortcuts. And I went into one of these rooms, and here was like droids. Must have been a thousand of these creative cards all torn up for parts, and some were shrink wrapped, some were. Some were missing whole sections, you know, it was really, this was like, it's like GM bearing those, you know, battery powered cars in the desert. It was like, wow, well, this didn't really happen. They, they pulled every one of those creative card machines when they started to take a bath. <laughs> but anyway, Cliff was so animated. Um, one of my first projects, big projects for the company. And this is where David's story will have a familiar ring for anyone who ever entered the world of corporate marketing as a wide-eyed creative idealist. I know it does for me, at least. Because for the uninitiated, there's a certain naivety when you enter the corporate world, where you believe that your key to success is exclusively your creative chops. Other skills, like intra-office politicking, pitching both externally and internally, in managing the volatile mood swings of unpredictable managers, well, the need for these can come as a bit of a rude awakening. For David, he got his during a meeting with his boss Cliff and EDR's CEO. His name was Don McKee. And Don was kind of a throwback, kind of a madman kind of guy. And he came in with, with Pete Bredis, the owner, who was really that home run vision guy. He always wanted the big project. Not, I, I can tell you about those projects. But so we get into this conference room and here comes Cliff around the corner because he was right out along the corner from her. And he, we sit down and he leans into Pete and he says, are you going to get out of the way? Jeez. This is the first thing he says. 
and I'm a I'm a young, you know, director. I'm a, I'm making my way. I'm, I'm getting my career here, and I just sat back like, what the hell is? What did he? What I mean, I just I started to shake a little bit, and Don's like, what do you mean? Get out of your way. Are you gonna get out? You gonna let him do his work? And I just I I was I didn't say a word in this meeting. And they, the two guys, the owner and the CEO, CEO just stormed out of there. Just kind of, well, I, I, I never, you know, they picked their little thing up and walked out. And Cliff gets up and, and there was a men's restroom right around the corner from the, the conference room. And he, he just disappears. I'm sitting in this conference room by myself like, what have I signed up for? This is in the first year I'm there. I'm like, this is really hair on fire kind of shit. Like every day this kind of stuff's happening. He comes out of the restroom and his nose is all bloody. And he's <laughs> getting the blood out of his nose. I'm like, Cliff, oh my God, are you. I mean, it's so dry in here because it's uh-huh. winter. It's no, it's my goddamn blood pressure. <laughs> I was just like, holy cow. He's like, David, I can't be a, I can't be a part of this project, David. You're going to have to take this on. I know you can do a great job. That's why I made you the creative director. You're the creative director now. So Cliff was very animated because shortly after that, he'd start coming to my office. He'd say, David, the boxes are nipping at my heels. I don't know how long this is going to go. Are you hearing anything? (laughs) Um, he He just wanted to get stuff done really fast, and they wanted to be sort of methodical and corporate about the way they carried themselves and I think there was a balance somewhere I did like some of his approach Um, another experience with him is we started to pick up special projects from Best Buy and we had a very young team right just so talented a couple writers you know Flash was a big thing we had a multimedia animator we had you know an art director that I'd hired Um, she was so talented we find ourselves there and it's like one two in the morning we had a lot of these late night, got to get it done by tomorrow things for Best Buy especially. And we'd come up with this avatar called Best Bud. Remember the little paperclip guy? Well, we were making this little yellow PDA guy we came up with. My team was like, Best Bud. We split into (laughs) five. He was, (laughs) I know that doesn't sound silly. It was a real thing. We had storyboards and everything. I am not kidding. Best Bud was going to be all the rage. He was going to help you pick out your next computer. I don't know. Best Bud. So they, they, they were sold on the initial concept. And uh, so we're there, and we had four different teams doing animations, storyboards, you know, these little presentations that we were going to take up the next day to Best Buy and present, myself, the senior writer, and, and Cliff. And it's 1 or 2 in the morning, and one of the writers is named Brian Tatsumi. I'll never forget. He was in the atrium off this kitchen, and Cliff was like fumbling with that big coffee maker you know those and i'm like what What? we're making coffee at like three in the morning and he went out and got a bunch of chocolate for everybody he was just wanted us to be happy and he heard brian laughing over around the corner and he said what the hell are you laughing get down here and he he hauled him down to the office and he just laid into him like maniacally laying and you could hear it you know on the other side of the building everyone was like what 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 is happening? I mean, Brian was doing all the writing for like three of the teams. You know, he was coming up with a lot of great concepts. And Brian walks by. I thought he was just going to walk right out, like for good. And uh, so I, you know, I'm learning my leadership skills. And 
So I, I, this is my Adam Sandler moment, by the way. I walk quietly down the hall. I mean, it's dead. Everyone's in, we had like glass doors in, we called it the hub. It's where, you know, like a big bullpen. Everyone's in there, slaving away in the dark. And I come to his office and he's sitting at his desk. And I, I just come around and I said, hey, uh, what's, what was that all about? Is, is everything okay? You want to do my fucking job? <laughs> and he jumps up and he runs to the door and he's breathing in my face. You arrogant son of a bitch. You think this is easy? Well, this is Best Buy. And, and I'm standing there and I'm shaking. And you know the adrenaline, like you feel it. And I said, mm-hmm. just like Adam said, I'm like, Cliff, I'm trying to be your friend. <laughs> And I oh, just, man. yeah, it just didn't come out real good. And I, <laughs> and then I, we, we had this, all the, the uh, leadership or managers had kind of those wall to ceiling steel case type offices and we called it the wall of shame. Well, as I walked down, the owner's daughter was there, heard the whole exchange because it was really, there was more to it. He just was singling me out for something. And then the director of programming was now Scott Glasser. And I'll tell you, that was it. You, I mean, I'm fast forwarding, but that was it for Cliff. He uh, he went out in the ball of flames. Spitballing innovative ideas, collaborating with a talented team of people, designing cutting-edge customer experiences, that's the dream for someone like David Moss. But the other stuff, the explosive personalities, the do-or-die pressure, the dog-eat-dog mentality of corporate politics... Well, that's its own special type of hell. And David didn't know it yet, but as a creative in a corporate world, his worst nightmare was yet to come. That's coming up in a minute here on Lead Balloon. It was the roaring mid-2000s, and David Allen Moss was creative director at EDR Media in Cleveland, managing the massive in-store media network for their flagship clients at Best Buy. For a creative and corporate world, it was a high-pressure position with the ability to swing wildly from dream job to nightmare with no warning whatsoever. I had told you about Best Buy being our golden goose, and we kind of lost track of when you don't have an account manager and you don't have someone up there calling on them every week and working with them, you're kind of out of sight, out of mind. And we just started to lose, not favor, but just the project, I think, ran its course after four years. And so we had a new sales manager. He says, David, if we get into this meeting and I think we're losing the account, I'm going to ask us to take five and you're going to follow me to the restroom. And that just seemed like a lot of drama. Like, is this really going to happen? It's so surreal because I saw this one guy who was always a little tough customer. He, he was a tough egg. And this is when people started to have smartphones and Blackberries. And he started really head down in his text, and that's when we knew we were losing the audience. We were having to convince them why to keep us. We went up there with these binders and everything we were doing and the new things we were going to do. You know, acting more like an agency, not just a production house. And Daryl's like, hey, folks, you know, let's take five. I, it's, just, it's been a while. We've got, let's, let's freshen up. Let's come back with some new ideas here and, and, and kind of wrap things up. David, you got a minute? Oh, my gosh, my heart was in my throat. I do remember that period in my career 
having more uh, adrenaline rushes than any other time. <laughs> I, think, you know, I think after being in that line of work for a little while, you just get to the point where maybe your body is out of adrenaline for a little while or you develop a tolerance to it. But something. After, after you've been screamed at face-to-face so many times, it just doesn't have the same impact that it once had. For sure, for sure. I also used to get, not panic, but I used to get like rapid heart rates in some of these meetings, like with Win Las Vegas and stuff. I was still young, still in my late 20s. And somebody told me that when they go into meetings, the first thing they do is they think about, wow, this person has a home life. This person has problems too. This person got up this morning. Maybe they had a coffee. Maybe they got ready. Maybe they drove. Maybe they had a commute. Like you just start thinking about how they're all just regular people. And the one thing great about Best Buy, you know Minnesotans. They were the sweetest people. I still keep in touch with two of my clients. One of them's not there anymore. But I still keep in touch with them. They were just such wonderful people to have as clients. They weren't ever hard on us, but they knew what they wanted. When they didn't want it, they would tell us. But in that very nice, it's not you, it's us, sort of a way. Yeah, no, that's that's very Midwestern and very indicative of every experience that I've ever had with a Minnesotan outside of a football setting. But that much said, you're you're pulled into the uh, the restroom with your colleague, and he appears to be getting ready to what? To go to war? To have a last stand? I have to tell you, I was very confused. I didn't know what I was going to contribute. I, I was kind of like, what do, you, what do you need me to do? You know, I mean, it, first of all, we use the restroom. But then you're having a meeting in the restroom. It's a little awkward having a meeting like at the stalls. You're like kind of reviewing quickly how the conversation was going, rating the different pivots in the conversation. I mean, there were two salespeople, the, the owner of the company, myself, and this sales director. We brought all the guns, right? I want a project manager. We brought like six people up to Minnesota. But it's a little too little too late. You got to know. That morning, I remember the owner saying, hey, well, let's meet early downstairs so we can talk about how we, how we talk. And I was like, I think we know what we need. We've been t- talking with these guys for five years. Okay. Um, but, you know, sometimes you just don't get after these things. And some, op- some client opportunities, you need to know you're not a right fit anymore. Or that project really ran its course. I mean, think about it. They didn't need all that content eventually, and they probably proved that people didn't want to see all the promotional slash infotainment type stuff they were doing at every end cap or you know in these sort of groupings. I mean, we did we did a great project for Gateway Computer, and then they were bought, and then they closed all their stores. So you just never know where the project's going to go. You can't get too psychologically invested in it. Is it tough for you to accept? I, I mean, after you guys lost the client and, and presumably went back to headquarters and, and had a post-mortem about it, and I, I think it's always very important to be accountable to your team and, and for everybody to be honest about what you can and can't control. But ultimately, this one just sounds like it was beyond your control. How long did it take you to accept that Really, there was nothing you guys could have done to make that dinner meeting turn out any different. Well, I think because we'd gone through such financial hardship as an organization, we took it a little hard. But my team, you know, the people making all the content, they just were disappointed they couldn't make this cool content anymore. You know, a good creative team is just eager for that next project. And if you have a good sales and creative direction kind of combo that can go out and sell good concepts on behalf of the team and then they can make these 
man, they're happy. And so we had to quickly find other. That's when we just kept going. We actually, Best Buy gave us the, the leverage to establish ourselves at that time in narrow casting and digital out of home. And we were very early. And one of the hardest things was to see how our company was actually pioneering that for content for that and all the custom programming and things we had to do to get stuff to the screen. That the financial history and legacy of the company ended up just ruining all of that. And then the whole company just collapsed. I left before that, but it was just, you know, it was, it's too bad, you know, because you can have people that are so visionary that when you're on the bleeding edge, you take a lot of lumps. That's why Apple's always been so smart. They let other companies come out with these things, and then they do the David Bowie. They're like, that's, we could do that, and we could do it a little better. And then they do it, and here comes the iPod. Looking back at the experience now with all the years of hindsight that you have, does it shape the way that you interact with clients or the way that you lead your team uh, as now the CCO at Evergreen Podcast? Yes. I try to always bring humor into the, I mean, come on, we're not saving lives. And people get really intense about their work. And I had a strange encounter with a friend of my stepdaughter's yesterday. Uh, he comes from some marketing group or some kind of, he runs some kind of call center for some software as a service out of San Francisco. And he moved back because he's from Cleveland. He's like, I brought my San Francisco salary with me, but you know, why should I, you know, I live here now. And, you know, he says, well, what do you do? And I said, well, you know, I'm a creative director by trade. That's what I've done for almost 20 years. He's like, oh yeah, well, I mean, what, for an agency? I mean, like really? And I said kid i was just didn't even know how to approach it because you know it's not a game you want people that believe in it and the best thing about podcasters is it's easy to get passionate about good storytelling and then i get to work with the team that puts the right messaging around that so that hopefully these stories will connect with audience because that's the hardest thing for me right now you know, we, we have all these shows, a lot of small networks and growing networks. We, we've got these shows, but you just never quite know where that audience is. It's a little different. I've found that very often, especially in a corporate setting, that there are people who get excited about storytelling for storytelling's sake and, and, and want to be good and mm-hmm. true to the story and want to, more than anything, serve a listener or serve their audience, serve the reader, whomever that might be. Sure. And and then there are people who take very much the sort of shortcut mentality of, all right, well, let's take the most direct route to the sale. And very often those are people who are in a position of power, mm-hmm. and selling those people on the need to take the sort of circuitous and and creative route of storytelling and serving your audience without giving them a buy now button right in their face every single minute, it can be kind of an uphill battle sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have have you found the same and and how do you translate the value of what you do as a storyteller into something that appeals to someone whose primary focus is on making the payroll? Oh my gosh. Not every company, and you know this, not every brand needs a podcast. So let's start there. Because some are thinking, oh, maybe we should have a podcast 
Um, we own this really innovative dumpster company, and we should talk about dumpsters. Not a lot of people are going to listen to a podcast about dumpsters. <laughs> no, well, that's the thing. It's our challenge as creatives to say, well, what's the real story? Is it the history of trash? Or is it the history of remodeling? Is it something sort of related to your industry? We can't make it just about that. We had a, an early project with a, a light bulb company. Well, they weren't a light bulb company. They were an innovation company. They would go into large retrofits and they'd say, we can go here, we can do here, we can do solar, we can do LED was the big thing. And here's also how you can get your fleet of stores. We can give you software that will be able to give you the data. Well, none of that's going to be really that interesting on a podcast. But on the other side of that, if they do talk about what they know and 50 people listen and one of those people is a buyer at Kroger and they put them on the approved vendor list and they get a $5 million retrofit project out of it, that's a great marketing investment. That's cheap. So I think it's up for us to see where the real story is and not, it can't just be podcast for podcast's sake mm-hmm. on that case. I do have a problem with going back to this young man who wondered if I was a real creative director, which I have to, I would call, I would say I chortle. I <laughs> chortle. And uh, I thought he was being churlish. Uh, there is a predisposition in the agency community. I, I like to call it playing house. There's a lot of gamesmanship. There's a lot of disingenuine, um, or I should call it false bravado about where you are position-wise in the organization. There's a ton of hierarchy still. It's not flat. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that a lot of people in the agency environment put so much of that bravado out in front that I just really can't, uh, in many cases, get through that veneer and really even believe that they're really that creative. I just don't. And so part of that is I've always played the gap between production design technology i've never been somebody that the agency world would quite understand because i've been able to play in all those spaces so i ended up just uh making my own path you know well and what i really respect about that is that your approach of of not judging somebody by their job title but judging somebody by the body of their work it's not easy it takes a lot of effort on your part to really understand a person for their creative chops but by that same token, I've always really been a lot more impressed by a creative person's side projects than I ever have been by their job title, if that makes sense. Right. Because side mm-hmm. projects are, by definition, extracurricular, and it's not yeah. something that anybody's making you sit down and do. It's something that you do for the love of it, and it's something that you do because there's something inside you that you need to get out. Sure. An, an itch that the day job doesn't scratch, yeah. essentially. And so... When I first met you almost a year ago now at uh, Podcast Movement, uh, one thing that impressed me right out the gate is you're a guy that has a lot of side projects. You want to tell me a little bit about uh, Mossum and uh, the new uh, content that you guys have been putting out into the world? Sure. Uh, Mossum is a high-energy prog rock, hard rock duo. I met a young man by the name of Russ Herbert at my wife's high school reunion and he's a very uh proficient drummer and uh we started playing we actually were playing with one of my old colleagues from edr media 
who was the audio director there. And uh, for one reason or another, we just uh, had to part ways. So here we were with this bass and drum combo about a year into it. And uh, we started people saying, listen, I don't think you guys need anything else. I think you can make this, just the two of you. So we just went for it. And I had been in, like I said, I'd been in bands in Bloomington, but there were things that I unsettled. You know, I put music down for a good 10 years to start my family and go through all this fun and games with the big clients and stuff. And once I got a taste of it again, it was like, oh, I I need this. This is like for my soul. This is for my soul. (laughs) And so it's a place where I can do creative that then um, recharges the other creative. And I think what can happen with burnout is that you're in one type of work and it's taking all of your mojo. If you don't have something complementary to that or something that actually recharges the other, so you can have different creative pursuits all at once, they should kind of recharge one another. If they're taking away, you know, if, if they're, you know, kind of pulling you too far apart, then you're, something's not right with the mix. I think that's one of the biggest pitfalls that creatives can fall into is, is not carving out a, a little time in your schedule. And it doesn't have to be much. It doesn't have to be something that you do every night or something like that, but just falling into the, the daily grind with something that you yeah. used to be passionate about and not having anything on the side that you just get to have fun with. When your passion becomes the only way that you're winning bread for your family, it puts you in a dangerous position of uh, coming to resent it yeah, over right. time. And so just finding right those ways to, to recharge those batteries. And uh, right. I, I, uh, I did enjoy my uh, my dalliance into the work of Mossum uh, recently. I I hope these are compliments to you when I say them. I, I heard a little bit of rage in there, a little bit of dream theater, and uh, and maybe a little bit of Primus uh, coming out. You I sure en- did. I enjoyed everything that I heard there. I don't know he remembers meeting me, but I met Les Claypool back in the 90s. No way, really? At the Horde Festival, and he was just what I thought he'd be. He's like, what's going on, man? He was standing around. He'd been out jamming. They had a little side stage. And there was just something I remember. One of the guys, everybody's starstruck, and one of the guys like, Whose name is that? Well, that's my mom. Well, why you got your mom's name on your shirt, man? He was just like quick, quick, quick jabbing. Yeah. <laughs> like any polymath, David has made his way through a number of creative ventures in the years since his time at American Greetings and EDR. His dabbling in entrepreneurialism eventually led him to accept the role of chief creative officer at Evergreen Podcasts in Cleveland. They're a podcast production house and distribution network, which... Yes, they're technically competition for my business, PodCamp Media. We have slightly different business models and aesthetic approaches, but we do court similar clients. But no, I'm not really threatened by that. I see David and the folks at Evergreen more as kindred spirits. Creative folks doing great work in a corporate world and always open to collaboration if it advances the telling of a great story. David, who's been at this longer than I have, says that's something that's still unique about the fledgling world of professional podcasting. I'm super impressed with our community. I think it's one of the more genuine and open communities in in media. And there's a lot of envy from established media. And that's why you see so many of the established media getting into the game, because they know if you get it right, it's, it's a pretty sweet spot. It's been great catching up, man. Thanks for ta- uh, making the time. Yeah, man. Super good. Really uh, grateful to be on your show, and I'm happy for you. This is a great, you know, I love the lead balloon. I could. It got me thinking about things, and honestly, those fire drills and those all-nighters, 
those are actually the good memories. I mean, you're going through them and your skin's on fire, but they're actually the things that really make you more humble and more resilient to keep, you know, reinventing, because that's what we have to do in media. We have to keep reinventing all the time. I tell folks that if it weren't for those experiences where I, I really, truly thought that I was not going to make it through um, physically, physically or spiritually, <laughs> <laughs> if not for those experiences, I, I wouldn't be half the professional that I am today, yeah. because it's not till you're tested that you really know where your limits are. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Lead Balloon, which is produced by PodCamp Media, where we provide branded podcast production solutions for businesses. Check out our website, podcampmedia.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn for the extra stuff. We bring you new tales from the world of PR and marketing disasters each month on Lead Balloon, so please subscribe to our show on your favorite app. And I'll end on this. It's been a weird summer, both long and short in its own ways, but I'm grateful for the opportunities that I've had to get out and enjoy some social distancing friendly activities. I can say this, I did a little bit of kayaking this past weekend and I took my uh, uh, my two-year-old um, out and he okay. was sitting in my lap and, and we got out onto the water and, and I was paddling along and, and I cracked open my beer and then I realized, I don't have a cup holder in this kayak. Oh, what? What am I gonna do with the beer? What kind of kayak are you using here? They call it a dryack. I looked at the little blonde towhead sitting in my lap, and I said, "I said, Henry, you want to hold Daddy's beer for him?" And he uh, went, "Yeah, give me, give me, give me." We have a problem solved. But it is also sort of a passing of the torch, kind of a moment for you. <laughs> I hope you and yours continue into the fall with your health and some semblance of your sanity intact. Here's to a warm fall and a short winter quarantine. Till the next time, folks. Thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.